I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello, and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones. This week, the first week of 2021, I'm speaking with James Wood, the author of several books of criticism as well as two novels, a staff writer at The New Yorker, professor of the practice of literary criticism at Harvard, and a member of the London Review's editorial board. He has a piece in the current issue of the LRB on Beethoven. It's a review of three books, one by Laura Tunbridge, Beethoven, A Life in Nine Pieces, and two by Mark Evan Bonds, The Beethoven Syndrome, Hearing Music as Autobiography, and Beethoven, Variations on a Life. Also listed at the top of the piece is the new complete edition of Beethoven's works, released by Deutsche Grammophon to mark the 250th anniversary of Beethoven's birth on 123 discs. Hello, James, and thank you very much for joining me. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. Nicholas Spice, writing on Glenn Gould in the LRB in 1992, described middle Beethoven as one of the points in the musical canon where fresh hearing has become most difficult. And I thought we could begin by talking about that difficulty and the way that over-familiarity or other people's ideas of Beethoven, what you call in your piece the heroic glower of his portrait, the worldwide canonicity, or the way that our own ideas prevent us from really listening to the music. And you begin your piece with a, with a wonderful comic account of your own early experience of that kind of difficulty. And maybe you could talk a bit about that now and, and how you overcame it. Yeah, I had a a musically inclined father, not himself a, a performer, but but a very well-informed auditor who collected different recordings of, of a strict rotation of the, the Viennese tradition. So it, it seemed as if every Sunday afternoon, which was always listening time uh, in the Wood household for classical music, we were cycling through Haydn, Schubert, Beethoven, and Haydn, Schubert, Beethoven again and again. Sunday after Sunday. And I suppose at about 13 or 14, I decided that I'd had enough of this torpid um, sluggishness on Sunday afternoons and couldn't really bear essentially any of the sort of Viennese tropes uh, anymore. Um, familiar cadences, endless uh, closures of symphonies as the orchestra goes boom, 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 you know, as if you're sort of somehow inside the timpani itself. And uh, I just wanted to get out of the room and uh, and listen to different kinds of music, like any teenager. I think that was obviously fantastically ignorant on my part, but it, it, the, it was partly funded by a certain snobbishness that I had, which was that, that I'd also been a cathedral chorister in, in Durham Cathedral, uh, where we were largely, when we weren't singing sort of Victorian tripe, we were largely singing a much earlier, um, really rigorous and beautiful polyphonic tradition that 
has people like Talus and Bird and Gibbon in its canon. And that really formed my listening. I was always on the was always listening out for for sort of chromaticism and difficulty and 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 dissonance and it seemed to me uh, again I wasn't listening properly but it seemed to me that sort of Schubert and Beethoven fell too easily into a kind of um or fell out of that fell out of that uh, polyphonic tradition in some way and that the Viennese classical tradition by contrast was a regression uh from the 16th and 17th centuries in in England so anyway this combination of sort of snobbery and rebellion meant that for many years I didn't listen to Beethoven properly. And as you said in your introduction, I mean, we were all laboring under under the sort of pedagogical uh, and scholastic weight, many of us, of, of having been sort of put to work on Fur Elisa or the slow mo- movement of the pathétique or something like that. And interestingly, if you look at the reception history of Beethoven, that began very soon. You can find people writing in the 1850s and 1860s, so, you know, only about 30 years after Beethoven's death, of how he has become part of the sort of keyboard pedagogical system. So I think all that, for me at least, and and perhaps for, for many of us, meant that Beethoven didn't get properly listened to until I was wiser and cleverer and more patient. And for me, that had to wait until my 20s. And also, you were no longer having piano lessons by that point, right? So exactly, the, it, I, and we we know this from uh, I, I know this from from trying to get my children to to play the piano. That the moment you sort of walk out of the room is the moment when they might actually do something on the piano. So I think yes, I had to stop having piano lessons and and leave the instrument for a bit, and then excitedly discover it again in my twenties um, with proper humility and and try to work through some of the don't want to say it easier. Beethoven sonatas. And there you found that they do have, they are closer to perhaps that music that you did like as a teenager than you previously thought, that there was counterpoint and relentless chromatic logic, as you put it in the piece, and that there, you know, it's not all being locked in the crashing timpani. Absolutely. Yeah, I had to slow down and listen to that. But of course, once you do, it's absolutely there. For instance, he has a, a consistent interest in fugue throughout his life. And if not fugue, then some sort of slightly softer version of that in his incredible interest in, in variations. And just the weirdest and most delicious um, harmonies and, and movements and, uh, and progressions, they aren't exactly like that English polyphonic tradition. I think there's a Glenn Gould quote that I like. He says that Beethoven is, is sort of half music curator and half mad inventor, museum curator, sorry, and half mad inventor. And the museum curator is certainly respectful uh, of what he was taught by his own teacher, Haydn. And so you'll continually uh, come across familiar cadences and closures and movements and so on that sound, as it were, Viennese. But there's always something else pushing the music on, too. Um, sometimes that's formally musical. Sometimes it's, um, it's just brutally, uh, brutishly rhythmic, actually. come on to rhythm in a moment because some of the parts of your piece which were most revelatory to me were what you you say about rhythm and listening to him because as well 
Beethoven's his the dynamics. He's so famously a, a musician of of dynamics. And Laura Tunbridge, as you say, usefully chips away at the traditional heroism. But at the same time, I mean, it is all there, isn't it? When you listen to the Third Symphony, whether one calls it the Eroica or, or not, it has this. Those things which sort of, sort of the mass easy appeal of Beethoven, the tunes and the, and, and, the, and the loudness of it all is all there. Totally. Laura Tunbridge writes very well about that, about the famous Third Symphony, the Eroica, completed, I think, in 1803, first performed in 1804, uh, and then first public performance, I think, in 1805. And she writes very well about how that must have, well, not must have, how it did strike the audience. She says that, you know, half the audience Im- Im- immediately became sort of Beethoven fans, uh, devotees, um, convinced that this was a great masterwork. And the other half uh, started grumbling and complaining, a sort of grumble and complaint that lasted for the rest of Beethoven's life. That he was too experimental. That it was it, that it, it stretched uh, forms. I mean, for one thing, you know, the the symphony is sort of twice as long as as it were the tradition had allowed. So suddenly he's doing uh, he, he's producing a symphony that's sort of twice as long as a, as a standard Mozart or Haydn symphony. Then he's doing tremendously long expositions where where musicologists still sort of struggle to, to to work out is that the second subject? Is that the second subject? Right? There's so many. There's a sort of plenitude of uh, of themes. Um, you mentioned the extraordinary dynamics, sort of massive fortissimos uh, down to tiny pianissimos. Um, and then this rhythmic thing, not just what he does with motifs. We're, we're all familiar with, with the sort of Beethoven Fifth Symphony, and I think Donald Tovey says somewhere that you could just that for many Beethoven works, if you just hammered out the rhythm on a, on a table, people would recognize it. We're familiar with, with sort of what he does rhythmically with motifs, but in addition in the Third Symphony, he starts using these sforzandi, these sort of stabbing emphases where... where so the Third Symphony tune, you know, goes... Bum, 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 bum. That's the famous tune at the beginning, E-flat e, e major tune. And the orchestra takes that up. And then in this sort of weirdly uh, emphatic stabbing way that forces uh, the orchestra sort of like an army, forces it out of step, he starts introducing, I think of them as almost like little bulges in the in the rhythm. So... very strange sort of jerky experience then yeah massive dissonant chords playfulness irony um you know this is supposedly a sort of martial uh, symphony that in some way evokes napoleon and napoleon's triumphs and adventures and and so on. Uh, And then you get to the fourth movement and the fourth movement begins sort of traditionally and quite massively. And then 30 seconds in stops and we get something that sounds like sort of Rossini, that you get pizzicato, double basses and cellos going boom, 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 boom. boom. 
think, what the hell is this? It's like it's like sort of some some comic buffoon, sort of opera buffa, some some buffoon has sort of come onto the come onto the stage. And when you think of it in terms of of, of the supposed heroism and triumph of of the of the of the symphony, you think he's having a good laugh too, right? He's really he's really playing around with what he's supposed to be doing. And then you go back to putting yourself in that in that audience in, in, in 1805, sort of not quite making sense of it. And I suppose that contrast or dialectic, whatever you want to call it, between the the kind of the the, the heroic and the and the comic and that restlessness is evident in his in Beethoven's own life as well, isn't it? The sort of the number of times he moved house and uh, <laughs> so the number of times he sold the same piece of music to more than one publisher. And this yeah, sort of- that was an, uh, that was a fantastic detail in in Laura Tumbridge's work that I haven't found anywhere else. Actually, I don't know where she she got hold of it. It was brilliant. Yeah, that that he inhabited sixty apartments in his professional life in in Vienna, partly because he just started quarrelling with neighbours or with landlords uh, or with servants, and people couldn't stand it anymore, and they had to get rid of him or he had to move. It's really striking that as you have the the sort of heroic reputation, we were talking earlier about sort of obstacles to Beethoven, resisting Beethoven. There's a there's a famous and wonderfully eloquent essay by the musicologist Richard Taruskin called Resisting the Ninth, which he lays upon us as a sort of almost, you know, contemporary obligation now. We, have, we can't just listen to it, we have to resist it. So you have this, you have the heroic Beethoven with all that's accumulated around him. And he seems sometimes to have played into this too. I mean, I don't just mean by calling his symphony the Eroica. I mean that that you find in his letters, he sort of gives out perfect kind of enlightenment uh, sayings, you know, I believe in liberty and virtue above all. You know, he sort of comes on sounding like Kant. And then you think, hang on, there's there's this the Beethoven who sort of almost pushed his nephew to suicide who quarrelled with his siblings, um, who who behaved poorly in taverns and yelled at servants and called Napoleon a shithead on his deathbed. That's there too. And it, it's sort of, it's, I guess it's sort of disinterring that Beethoven from the, from the heroic glower and from layers and layers of pedagogic patina. Uh, that's yeah, the also, trick. I'm just thinking about the, um, the people who had to move his piano every six months between one apartment to another. Yeah, in 1817, when Broadwood sent a beautiful, you know, latest edition uh, piano from London, it went first to Trieste, and then it came over the Alps to Vienna. Isn't that a fantastic sort of Hannibal-like? It comes over the Alps. When it's received, it's in such terrible uh, state that it basically has to be sort of worked on and reconstructed by, by craftsmen there. Yeah, so that question of, of piano technology is really interesting in, in terms of Beethoven's work because didn't he, that they were almost pianos were physically growing as he was composing that the when they could put iron frames in them and they could make them bigger and they could add more octaves on and that he was at different times he was composing for different lengths of keyboard and isn't it right that even at times he he composed for pianos that didn't yet exist sort of imagining a piano with more octaves than than he had yeah. I mean, he was he so yes, he was very interested in in piano technology. And as the keyboard expanded, um, you know, he would take, for instance, he would take particular make particular use of of, of lower octaves and stronger bass when when he could. When he writes the fantastically complex and 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 consistently amazing um, Hammerclavier piano sonata in eighteen seventeen eighteen eighteen, he's 
I think he's writing in the slow movement. He's writing for certain very high notes that didn't exist uh, even on the on the latest Broadwood piano that had been sent to him. In that sense, he's sort of when we combine that with the thought, of course, that he's that he's not actually physically hearing this music that it's that it's an imaginary music um it seems to me and i guess we combine that with the with the thought that the hammer clavier doesn't actually get publicly performed in his lifetime anyway there's some way in which then he begins to seem not just a sort of radically private composer but a composer almost doing sort of the platonic forms of pieces right there's something magically imaginary uh, about the thing because i mean the difficulty of the of the hammer clavier of the late, I mean, your piece does a, a very good job of chipping away at those categories of early, middle, and, and late Beethoven. But and I know that the Ninth Symphony is technically late. But if we have to, you know, I kind of feel that Emmanuel Macron coming on to his inauguration to the strains of the Ode to Joy at the kind of the that's what you have to resist while trying to listen to that now. But the um, the difficulties of listening to the hammer the hammer clavier. I mean, even the fact that it's a piano sonata that that's almost an hour long or it can be you know they can take almost an hour to perform but at the same time as you say there are there, there isn't this radical break is there that there are continuities between his his all, all of his work and that there are moments in the hammer clavier where you can hear pretty easier to quote you at this point that the um that's right so you talk about yeah the lovely serene clear melodies there we are there's that, that he's still I mean, in that very crudely, he can still, you know, he can still write a nice tune, and that's <laughs> that's something that continues throughout his. Yes, the, you're you're right that the that among the sort of Beethoven mythologies, so we so there's the there's Furelisa and sort of you know um, um, keyboard pedagogy, you know, trudging through that. There's the heroic glower. There's the Ninth Symphony and all its many uses, from the EU to to resistance in Chile, um, Occupy Wall Street and Madrid. I mean, it's simply astonishing what's been done with that tune from the last movement. And along with all that, there's the particular mythology and aura of Beethoven's late style, that from about 1817, from about the Hammerclavier, over the next decade to, to his death in 1827, Beethoven is producing difficult experimental works, often piano sonatas and string quartets, that seem to make new demands on the listener, that seem to sort of stretch out form, almost to stretch the notes uh, open in some way, um, to hang notes almost like a very slow Mahler movement. And there's no denying that that's the case. I mean, I, I don't want to, to say that isn't there. It is there, and it's part of the great appeal. And, and one of the things I love about that hammer clave is its, particularly that fourth movement, is its extraordinary radicalism. I mean, that those those obliterating trills that 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 are like a they're like a fist coming down on the piano. Um, and if you hear someone like Daniel Barenboim playing it, for instance, he really does almost thump the piano with those trills. When they're when they're sounding, they they're they're killing all the other the other sound. I mean, it's almost like it remind it makes me think almost of the 
of that painter Frank Auerbach that W.G. Sebald was so interested in because he would start erasing, scoring out what he'd done on the manuscript. There's some self-cancelling thing that those trills do. The radicalism is undoubtedly there. But as you say, then you you start the, the slow movement of the Hammerklavier, which is 20 minutes long, but it starts with a sweetness of tune and sound almost like we're going back to the to the pathétique or something like that Those lovely, I think of them as serene. They're, they're they're very moving, but they're not they're not tragic. They're they're beautifully calm and serene serene tunes, uh, and melodies. Really do go right through Beethoven's career. I mean, the late piano sonata one o nine, the slow movement has a lovely E major tune which begins and ends the movement, and then there are complex variations within. But it's as if Beethoven, it's as if Beethoven's sort of saying, you know. Here's the complexity, and then here's the simplicity on 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 either side, um, uh, beginning and ending the uh, the movement. And you also mention the ethereal F major melody of the second movement of the Tempest Sonata. Yes, this is quite early sonata, relatively speaking, from from 1802, that has this very sweet, simple. F major tune, almost like I think of it as almost like sort of walking through the countryside or something. It's 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 beautiful. Adorno said that it, that it's the sound of hope itself, um, which I also find find very moving. And so I suppose I'm as interested in the continuities as the as the as the break. And I think I think the the very plenitude of that last decade should also give us pause when we think of sort of decisive breaks, right? I mean, there's some way in which, if this is late style, he's he's getting into it, right? He's getting into his stride. He very movingly writes in 1824 to his publisher. He says, I've still got plenty to do if the spirit is with me. And then he says, it really seems to me as if I had written hardly any music at all. Can you imagine writing that in 1824 when he's written, you know, he's just working on the night or maybe he's finished the night. He's written all the symphonies, all those wonderful piano sonatas and so on, all the other pieces. And he, he says, 
I, I'm just basically I'm just getting going, um, and I think you can see that he was. Um, and uh, wow, just imagine if he lived another sort of ten or twenty years. Yes, because in a way that the, the idea of late style it can only be considered retrospectively because you can't say, well, I'm now going to begin my late style and then you can continue writing for another 40 years. It's uh, it's not something one can choose oneself, is it? It has to be. And of course, I mean, it was Adorno who, who came up with the label for Beethoven and, and has been applied to so many other artists since. But I'm sure, you know, I, I can say you don't imagine Shakespeare sitting down to write The Winter's Tale. I go, right, well, I've had my... I've done done my tragedies. Now I'll write my late romances. <laughs> Maybe four of them. Yes, late style is 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 our construction, and it's very interesting reading Adorno, who's so brilliant in so many ways on Beethoven. There are all sorts of things. I mean, it's not just when he's writing about late style; he's got so many other interesting things to say about Beethoven. But but you can see him even with with late style. You, you you can see him sort of struggling. He doesn't want to come on, as it were, like sort of L. C. Knights on late Shakespeare, right? He doesn't he doesn't want to he doesn't want to be remotely um, traditional and romantic about it. He does the, no no part of him wants to say, well, the late style is because Beethoven is facing death and uh, he knows what's up and death invades the works. But nevertheless, Adorno does end up basically saying that he basically en- ends up saying. These works are so strange and open, uh, open out, uh, opened out, and sort of um, fissured and spiky and difficult because, because they're late. I mean, he says, touched by death, the masterly hand sets free the matter it previously formed. There you have it. Uh, in in some way, that could have been written by E. T. A. Hoffman, right? Um, in in sort of you know eighteen ten or by someone in eighteen fifty, and and you can't get get away from it. And undoubtedly, it's there. But I go back to that the sort of Beethoven of eighteen twenty four writing the Ninth Symphony, supposedly in his late moment, writing this massive political and musical appeal to to an audience, not turning away from his audience. Um, writing these tunes that that people will carry with them for ever after, you know, walking through the countryside uh, and 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 writing to his publisher, you know, I don't feel like I've written very much. I've still got plenty to say. That doesn't sound late to me at all. Indeed, yeah, just late style. He was just getting going as you as you finish your piece, or you know, which is a wonderful a wonderful last sentence to me. <laughs> getting going as 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 the final words. Um, have you ever have you ever tried to play the hammerclavier? Um, I've only—it's too terrifying. I've only ever tried to play the, the the beginning of the slow movement, you know, nice and stately. Um, though that soon gets quite quite tough too. No, I literally—I mean, I love hearing that fourth movement, and I love hearing those obliterating trills, and I love looking at them on the score too. But I know that if I tried to do it, it would be—it would be—it would be hopeless. Just thinking about the different—I mean, one of the strange effects of of recorded of recorded music that obviously when Beethoven was composing the only ways in which people would be able to hear it would be if they listened to it live or played it themselves but through the course of the 20th century we've developed we've you know these canonical recordings have been made in this idea and I just this is a slightly absurd example but I remember sort of complaining to my piano teacher when I was 14 that as I was struggling through the pathétique and saying, well, you know, I've just listened to Vladimir Ashkenazi play it and I'll never be able to play it like him, so what's the point? And, and his <laughs> sort of slight, funny, ridiculous reply was, well, he's been playing it for a lot longer than you have. And it was kind of, but that, that is not the only difference and it won't be. But at the same time, I realise now he was making a point about 
here is the music, here's the score. If you have a piano, you can try to play it, you can play it yourself. And that sort of failing to, to play it as well as you know it can be played, that way of interacting with the music is a, it, is a way that would, and it actually is more familiar, would have been more familiar to Beethoven in the idea of listening to a recording of, of someone, you know, something that was recorded 50 years ago by someone who may now be dead and you can still listen to them play. But to Beethoven, that would have been less imaginable than, as it were, so anyone on the piano struggling through it. And as well, the more provincial you are, the, the harder it is to hear. I mean, I'm trying to think if someone in, in Basingstoke or, as it were, in, in 1880 wanted to listen to the, to a Beethoven piano sonata. Right, I think that's, a, that's an absolutely themselves. brilliant point. I mean, so you either had to, and presumably previous generations were much better at this than we are, you either had to develop that particular skill which I think even even for very good musicians, it doesn't come naturally. Uh, apparently Adorno had it exceptionally and cultivated it from early childhood. So from five or six was reading scores. So you either have to have that ability, which is to actually look at the score and hear it, or yeah, you're going to have to go to the piano and try and thump it out. And what you will produce is, I mean, it's hideous to contemplate, isn't it? Right? You're, 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 let's say you're in Durham, you're me in Durham in, in 1890, and your music teacher says, uh, which is highly unlikely, it has to be said, but your music teacher says, now, the pinnacle of Beethoven is the Hammerklavier. Fourth movement, I mean, just astonishing. Just fugue, chromaticism, um, enmeshed lines. And you sort of think, I've got, I've got to have some of this. I've got to listen to it. And you, you go to the score, but you're not really good enough at, at being able to read the score, so it just looks like a lot of notes. You put it up on the piano and then you start butchering it. <laughs> and so this, in a way, takes us back to this very odd, almost uncanny idea of the sort of ideal platonic thing that Beethoven hears, though without hearing it. He hears it, imagines it. And then in some obscure version of mathematics, almost, produces it on paper. And then is condemned not only not to be able to hear it because of his deafness, but presumably would be further condemned, even if he could hear it, to not brilliant performances, right? Um, I mean, we know this from, we certainly know this from the history of orchestral uh, performance, that, you know, for a long time, probably well into the, into the 20th century, until, until performance got sort of regulated uh, and 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 the quality of performers uh, got got regulated you know to to write symphonies and uh, and things was to 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 throw yourself on the to the mercies of of whoever you had you know what band of of, of merry musicians you had at, at hand i always think about that with bach right you sort of imagine sort of bach coming in on kind of saturday afternoon choral rehearsal well i've got this thing that i want you guys to do tomorrow and they look at it and they say the trumpeters say, but this this is unbelievably hard. There's, I can't even do these high notes on the D trumpet. And he says, well, just do it. You'll have to learn it. We've got to do it tomorrow. It must have been an, an, an extraordinary, persistent education in disappointment uh, to, be, to have been a composer.
the Bach comparison does raise an interesting element that 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 I that I wrote about in in the piece, and it's maybe the difference we could call it maybe the difference between sort of between trade and modern art difficulty, right? Bach was churning it out and had to churn it out um, as part of his contract and was producing what what we might call as well as sacred music. He was producing useful music um, that, that the church and the community could use and, and get behind and so on. And it does seem that Beethoven's life and career embodies a shift uh, in music, as I guess was happening at the same time in, in, in literature too, from a kind of trade model to what we now think of sort of modern difficulty. The solitary artist, I mean, it's not entirely true, but the solitary artist, um, uh, the difficult artist who starts demanding things of the, uh, uh, of the listener. And I suppose that in literary terms that the, the closest parallel, and, and I use it in the piece, would be, would, be, would be Flaubert. I think Stephen Heath wonderfully says about Flaubert that in that this is where style be- first becomes problematic. Um, and Flaubert's letters testify to that. Flaubert says, you know, it's agony to be, to be squeezing out, you know, five words a day when I can look back and see that Cervantes and Shakespeare and Moliere and the rest of them were just, you know, churning it out. Uh, how did they do it? And why is it, why does it fall to me to, to strain so? Again, Beethoven's interesting because on the one hand, you can see he belongs to a sort of modern difficulty, um, uh, a kind of romantic, um, uh, extremity and so on. On the other hand, he's actually in many ways closer to the Shakespeare, Bach, Cervantes uh, model, I think, in in this kind of endless fertility, the plenitude, the sort of, you know, I'm just getting going uh, kind of um, uh, thing. Yeah, and also what you say about his, um, him as a, as a pianist, that his was, uh, he was an improviser. I mean, he would sit down at the piano and play for hours. Absolutely, and I didn't know until I started reading, I mean, because I'm, you know, I'm not a musicologist, and that, that has to be um, I should have said that right at the beginning, I guess. So I, I didn't, I knew plenty about Beethoven, but I didn't know until I started reading uh, for this piece. Um, I didn't know about this thing of, of, of sort of improvising and fantasias. Uh, but apparently it was quite common if you went to a concert in Vienna in sort of 1805 or something or 1810, you might well have Beethoven premiering a couple of new pieces and then basically sort of sitting down like a jazz pianist, sitting down at the piano and doing, you know, a riff, a fantasia. And he was well known for this. Um, he was sort of brilliantly good at it. And someone in 1803 reports hearing him improvising like this for two hours on the end of the Third Symphony. So he's basically sort of sitting down and saying, hey, here's this motif from the last movement of the Eroica. Um, I'm just going to mess around with it for a couple of hours. I think that's why you find that consistently the piano sonatas push boundaries more than any of the other, even to my mind, more than, even than the string quartets, but certainly more than the symphonies. That, that, and that that begins right, that begins early. That, that isn't just about, about late piano sonatas. You can see that right at the beginning in, in, um, 1798 with opus 10, number three, very strange dragging chromaticism of the of the lago in that in that sonata mm-hmm. 
You can see him just slowing things down, playing around, searching for tonality. And I think that intricate connection uh, is never broken between improvisation at the piano and, and the formal production of the sonata, of the piano sonata. So the way in which he's been sort of the canonization or the... I don't know if you, or you could even say ossification of the idea of the the canon and that this is how Beethoven must be played is in some ways contrary to the spirit of, Be- of Beethoven himself because who's to know, you know, if he were to sit down and play one of his sonatas, <clears throat> chances are he's not going to play it note for note as written in the same way that, I don't know, if you go to see Van Halen in concert, you're expecting him. <laughs> you're expecting two hours of virtuoso guitar solo because that you know it's the virtuosity of the playing as as much as the, the music has written down, as it were. That's a brilliant point. Um, yes, that the canonization and the ossification has to do with all sorts of things. As you were saying earlier, it has to do with recording technology in the 20th century. So we get these sort of sacred recordings, right? And that was very much the sort of that was the slightly oppressive feeling for me of Sunday afternoons. Um, it should be said that Sunday mornings for me were religious. So Sunday afternoon also seemed religious in a different way. But there was a sort of, there was a religiosity around the composers, but also a religiosity around the recordings, which were harder to get hold of in those days and more expensive. And so, you know, the, my dad would sort of go into the box and bring out the LP and say, now, we're going to listen to Barenboim. And these, the, the last names of these Solomon, Barenboim, Arau, the, of these pianists would sort of shimmer in my mind. But so this canonization, as you say, is, is very much bound up with stable texts, right? Published stable texts that have been edited and annotated that never change. And then sacred recordings, um, that we can access, uh, pretty much whenever we want. Um, and, it's good to be reminded that to go back to 1810 or to go back to 1815 is is to be in a much more fluid uh, space. It's, it, for instance, it's interesting to me, every so often I try to look at, there, there are a lot of Beethoven manuscripts uh, around, and there are a lot of notebooks where he, he obsessively put down sort of motifs and openings for it's, it's reckoned that, that something like 50 symphonies uh, are, are begun in in these notebooks and i try to look at them every so often and it's absolutely impossible to make any sense of them they are they are more so than most composers calligraphy they're just they're un, they're unreadable they're illegible they're some kind of private sketch that he had for himself that cannot transmit um, to us so it's good in a way to be to be taken back to that more fluid kind of private um world whereas you say it might be the case that that beethoven would play a piano play a piano sonata slightly differently from how he how he'd just written it as the ink is drying as it were leave you with something that that i that amuses me and that uh, might amuse you too when you go back and listen to it um there's a moment in the piano sonata opus 110 in which i think it's in the first movement but i may be wrong about that in which beethoven 
repeats 10 times a massive G major chord. It goes, and in, with increasing volume, so it goes, bum, bum, bum. And then he does an arpeggio of the of the notes in the chord, boom, 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 all, all up the thing. Whenever I've heard that, I've all I can't even though I, I know I'm supposed not to do it. I hear Beethoven frustrated at his deafness. In other words, I go into that romantic mode of reading of reading Beethoven through you know the labor, the struggle, the heroic, the heroism, and so on. And I, for me, that's him sort of saying. Christ, I can't hear, I can't hear, I can't hear. Thump, thump, thump on, on the on the piano. But what's amusing is that I was reading for for the for this piece, I was reading some stuff, and the pianist Edwin Fisher was talking about Opus 110 and those same chords, and he says he said it was to him like the sound of a returning heartbeat. <laughs> so it's just a sort of very nice lesson in how <laughs> Sort of what we project onto onto onto, onto to music. It's a sort of lesson in humility to to be careful of our own projections. James Wood, thank you very much. You can read James Wood's piece in the current issue of the LRB, the first number of 2021, along with me and Christ on the Gaia hypothesis, a story by Lydia Davis, and Alan Bennett's diary for 2020. Thanks for listening. You can find a link to LRB pieces relevant to this episode in the description below.